Welcome to Squashing the Market with Bill Ullman, and I am so pleased to welcome Margaret Hartigan to the studio for this latest episode. Margaret is the founder and CEO of Marstone, Inc., a New York-based financial technology company. Marstone is a digital wealth platform available for white label to existing financial institutions. It offers account analytics, personalized portfolio creation, and it helps institutions with their client acquisition and retention and productivity. Prior to starting Marstone, Margaret was a top quintile financial advisor for 10 years in the Global Wealth Management Group at Merrill Lynch, splitting her time between New York and San Francisco. She is a graduate of Brown University, a former trustee of the Sonoma Academy in Santa Rosa, California, and an active leader in the alumni and major development efforts at Brown and Exeter. Welcome, Margaret. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Thank you, Bill. So let's get started by talking about your journey from Brown University to CEO of a fintech company in New York, rapidly growing, doing all sorts of great things. How did you get here? What were the critical moments in your pathway to Marstone? Sure. At the time, it didn't seem like this would be the outcome of my journey, but because I was actually a humanities major at Brown, um, I was English major in film. But I was always interested in the markets. My dad was a financial advisor, is a financial advisor. My brother and other people are in finance. And I was always interested sort of in how different companies contribute to economies, basically holding companies, how products are developed and distributed. My dad would show us, you know, that toothpaste is owned by this company called Procter & Gamble, things of that nature. So I always really liked the qualitative narrative aspects of it. So um, I invested from a young age. But I worked at .com originally when I graduated from college. Um, After a stint on the Hill, I worked in San Francisco, and I got my first view of what it's like to work with entrepreneurs, create companies, figure out things like valuations, uh, and go to market, and kind of the trials and tribulations of that. But after the first tech boom and bust, I then decided to... That would have been 2001-ish? Yeah, exactly. Like 99, 2000. I did a bit of consulting, but then I thought, you know, I really like working with people. And I found out that a lot of people on the West Coast perhaps were making a lot of money because of their lucky endeavors in technology or commerce or what have you. But most people really didn't know how to manage the money or handle it. So I decided to join the training program at Merrill Lynch. And from there, you know, I built a practice that included everyone from the 401k WebEx communications program that I managed all the way to lucky individuals who uh, had been on you know, down to Silicon Valley making a lot of money. Fantastic. And so what, you're, you're this successful stockbroker, mm-hmm. financial advisor at Merrill Lynch. Mm-hmm. You're building your practice. What makes you want to leave that and now start something new? Great question. So I, as you noted, I was client-facing from 2001 to 2012, and my practice was split between San Francisco and New York. And what happened was I decided I wanted to move back to the East Coast at the end of 2007. And leading up to that period, people were really frenetic. They thought, I have too much cash. I need to put my cash to work. Everyone wanted to be in the market, and it got a little nutty. And then, of course, the events of 2008 happened. Very impactful time for me personally, because for me, every one of those accounts was a personal narrative. It was a retirement account. It was a special needs trust. It was a college account. And what I realized during that period was that most people lacked financial literacy. Even some of the most sophisticated, educated people with whom I worked, who may have been very successful in other businesses, really didn't understand the correlation of the investments that they were in and how their portfolios tied not only their future, but their day-to-day lives. So I realized, you know, the way we do business will never be the same. I'm old enough that I'll be successful in this business and I'm a top producer, but I really believe the advances in technology are really going to transform the way we do business. So I I wouldn't say I'm naturally a risk taker. It almost felt like a calling because it just kept gnawing at me and gnawing at me. And so I eventually left and 
And the premise of what I wanted to do was create one platform that met the needs of the client. So it demystified and humanized finance so that they could actually engage and understand the why of why they're investing and why they should stay in. For me as an FA, you might remember in the wake of 2008 when President Obama got elected, there was lots of rumors about what was going to happen to the tax code, in particular inheritance tax. And so I saw a lot of people start moving money across generations in a way that was typically against their DNA. So for instance, I saw people putting down payments down on kids' houses. I saw people starting to pay for grandkids' schools. I started seeing a bunch of stuff because the idea was if the government's going to get it, forget it. I'm going to start, you know, passing it soon. So I did some quick English major math and said, wow, when this really gets going between boomers. I like that English major math. (laughs) (laughs) Boomers, Gen X, uh, Gen Y, this is going to be a massive problem for the industry. So I thought, could we have a platform that enabled the client to feel more engaged, but also the financial advisor and my admin team to better engage with the next generation of investors? Could they have personalized accounts? Could we have more human language, get away from jargon? Could we also just do things that believe it or not, are still kind of radical. Our premise was, let's not try to disrupt financial services. Let's actually try to help the existing institutions better retain and engage and and meet their client needs. Fantastic. And tell us about Marstone. I think on your website, it says, the new investing era is here. What is new? Uh, What is this new investing era? What does that mean? It's a lot of things. For one, it's the ability to have, obviously, mobile strategies to be able to engage, the ability to learn from peer groups, the ability to invest according to larger beliefs. So that's one thing. I also think that more and more because of the internet, people love to explore and learn. They like having the system demonstrate different paths for them, but they also like the ability to do it a bit on their own, but have the support and recognition that they're not going to hurt themselves. Like in the past, I think in the 2000s with the first tech boom and bust, people were day trading, they were buying stocks that were kind of maybe a bit silly and over-concentrating. Now people want more diversified portfolios with the ability to have some optionality or change certain investments. Is one way of putting it, are you trying to empower companies like Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs, et cetera, to become more like Betterment and Wealthfront, to give people a more modern, robo, low-cost offering? In, in a way. I mean, our premise is really to enhance financial literacy, financial inclusion, and really demystify finance and humanize it for most people. Because most people make almost hundreds of financial decisions a day, like Uber, Walk, Bus, blah, blah, blah. But somehow with Madison Avenue's help, we've convinced people that they're incapable of dealing with their own money. But I think if you demonstrate things and meet them where they are and in language that they understand, and especially if it's highly visual, people will start understanding. On one level, yes, we wanted to help institutions become more contemporary and perhaps be able to fend against the disruptors. But the platform is designed so it can be a self-directed robo-platform, so no human being involved. We've always believed the financial advisor is very important, so the platform can also be used with financial advisors with their clients. But it can also be an ultra-high net worth portfolio that doesn't allow the client to really do anything other than update records. The platform's designed to work with any client in whatever segmentation they are for the institution. So But yes, you're right. I mean, HSBC, this is publicly announced. They're an anchor client, and they're one of the first platforms uh, users. You provide this tech, and and you do it to insurance companies, maybe insurance companies as well, or banks or broker-dealers. Sure, yeah. It can be everyone from a family office, community bank, credit union, and a large asset management company. But what's interesting about it is we started off wanting to have a digital platform to, like you said, enable a community bank to be able to have better wealth management, financial planning, and a digital platform. But what we're finding out more and more, the people who are really excited about what we're doing are actually the manufacturers. 
What we built ended up being this awesome chassis with connective tissue to core banking service companies, custodians, but also different manufacturers. On one level, we have a great logistics network that makes it really easy for other people to distribute through us. And I I noticed also your co-founder has more of a design background, not a finance background. Talk about that because I think core to your product is this, you, you mentioned Apple before, which is obviously everyone's. Uh, ultimate in terms of design and simplicity, ease of use. Is that something you're going for and what you're trying to communicate to investors? That's right. So Robert Stone is our co-founder, and we were personal friends for a long time. He comes from a a creative strategy background and was a co-founder at SY Partners, formerly known as Stone Yamashita Partners. And I, I... I knew that we had a good idea, and I thought our, our idea of partnering with the big custodians and the big banks was the right one. But without the visual kind of brilliance and also seemingly easy simplicity that Robert creates, it would fall flat. It would it would look like anyone else. And what was nice is Robert always worked with financial advisors. So even though he had created wealth and he had worked with financial advisors, he was also still financially innocent in terms of the way that you engage with the platform, the questions to ask, or any of the terminology. And that was such a great gift to us because it made us really question ourselves and what our assumptions are or what our assumptions were of a client and the way things should be. In fact, they don't have to be anyways. That's the conditioning that the the investment firms give us. They're all kind of a little bit clunky and they're online. So Robert um, has completely created all of the look and feel, the navigation our logo down to soup to nuts, and he does a lot of work for our clients as well. Let's take a step back for for a second and talk about founding Marstone, the process you go through. You obviously uh, can't just wave a magic wand and say, I'm in business. You need to form a company, have a business plan, raise capital. Talk about that process and what that was like to go through, and what are the, the key steps that you have to take to get launched? Well, it was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of um, for someone who skis, it's like the first time you dip into like a pretty aggressive, you know, ski slope. There's only one way to go once you step off on um, the security of having a job that you built an annuitized practice up for more than 10 years. You know, at first it's really fun. It's very romantic. You have this big, bold idea. It gets you out of bed. You know, you're excited about it. People want to talk about it. And then you start getting clearer and clearer about the path forward that you're going to go. So I, I don't know if it's like this for other founders, but I, I didn't really know anything. I didn't know if I should be at S Corp, an LLC, a C, you know, and it wasn't easy to get obvious answers, frankly. Not one thing was actually easy, to tell you the truth. And the other thing that was funny was um, I always thought of myself as a fiduciary, as a Merrill FA or as a FA, right? And so until I had really felt what my um, business plan was going to be, I didn't take capital, so I, I self-funded and Robert for the first period of timing. So when we thought we were going to go direct to consumer and then decided to not do that and just do B two B to C, you know, we we took that blow. But you could also now go out to investors with a clean story and oh, completely and more confidence that this was the right path to take because you had done all that work or suffered that yes failure. But, but it's interesting because. You know, there's. I, I'm not a big fan of the word disruption, but there, you know, there was such a fervor to disrupt everything and burn the houses down, right? And when you, if you have that mindset as an, you know, investor, when you tell them like, hey, we're going to partner with BNY Mellon Pershing and plug into their back end, they're like, wah, wah, wah. so 
there is this idea, you know, they, people think you have to own all your own tech and blah, 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 but they didn't really understand the nuance of our business, you know what I mean, and how big these legacy systems are and all the things they tick and tie to. So, you know, and then you're told, well, you're a first-time founder, you don't have an MBA, you know, and I think there were certain biases like that. So we actually bootstrapped a, a lot of the way. Later, we had some institutional investment, but... How did you go about valuing your company at such an early stage? Because it's obviously, you might have had some revenue coming in or pre-revenue either way it's hard to know what's going to happen five years from now and obviously the the founder owner wants a somewhat higher value than the investor wants how do you come to that to come to terms on that we did convertible note structures um, with caps uh, early on and so with discounts um, to like the the, the the valuation raise so that was you know, having been through the tech boom and bust earlier, I was really nervous about getting into a valuation trap. I had seen meaning, it. meaning you value the company too high. Or anyone does. Yeah. You know, I had worked right. at a dot com that had all these, you know, big name people um, behind it and also big law firms and you know, market environments change. So I always felt the market will dictate what we're, what the valuation of the company is. You talked about some of the difficulties of starting a company and the, the fears of, of doing it. I recently interviewed Angela Ceresny, who's the CEO of Climb Capital here in New York, an education finance company. And we discussed a little bit about what it was like to be, what it's like being a woman in, in finance and a woman in the tech world. It's sort of a double whammy. What have you experienced in your career? And would, do you view it as an advantage, disadvantage? Has it made life harder for you in terms of either raising money or hiring people? Or how has that factored into what you're doing today? I think, especially at the early stages, and you might relate to this, when you know, you're know you with some friends and playing golf or tennis or something like that, and they tell you, Bill, about like a deal that they're looking at. You know, they become an evangelizer for the founder who's looking to raise capital in the early days and potentially get mentorship. I believe that men have greater networks to do that and are more comfortable to do that. I, it, women are now developing those sort of communities and networks, but they're really nascent compared to, to guys. I don't know that it's um, an intentional female bias. It's just that there, there's not as much of that kind of going out for beer, talking about the latest deal you just got in and, you know, getting some other buddies to look at it and maybe come in. So that, I think, is one of the, the hardest things. But again, I don't I, I don't know that it's an anti, it, it was a bias. It was just women don't have it. Have you noticed it changing in New York? I seem to see more women in fintech groups, women's organizations promoting each other, women's conferences, uh, networking jobs, tech tech-oriented, finance-oriented, too, fintech-oriented. Yeah. Have you seen that? Has that been helpful to people in the New York, at least New York community? Absolutely. And, and you're right. It, it has grown tremendously. Like I met with a um, mutual friend the other day, and um, she's one of the co-founders of Trail Mix Ventures. You know, I wish they had been around when I first started, right? Or you know, what Michelle Trend and other people are doing at New York City fintech is extraordinary. And what I think the big difference is, is that people always talked about wanting to support minorities and women, but it wasn't that substantive. And it did not really have tools or a network to follow through on that. And now I think it's completely different. I mean, you look at Goldman Sachs launch and the fact that Stephanie Cohen is the head of that. That's a real signal in terms of where Goldman Sachs is making a commitment. I mean, they're giving you know a rock star this mandate. It's saying that the firm is very serious about this. And I think that that's great. So yes, I think it's it's incredibly, it's changed incredibly, and I do think it's more um, collaborative and, and helpful 
you worked at Merrill Lynch, a, a large traditional financial institution, and you're now, you've, you've also worked at entrepreneurial organizations and you've started one yourself. What should listeners, particularly those at the earlier stages of their careers, think about in terms of the advantages or disadvantages, pros and cons of working for a large organization or a startup? It's an interesting question. I think some of it's dependent on their motivation. So for instance, if you are interested in investment banking, it depends what your career path wants to be. Like if you want to be managerial, it depends on how you want to develop a subject matter expertise. So I think one difficulty with the the excitement about everything being disrupted and whatnot, we lose sight of people who have lots of experience and have been through different market cycles, no matter what the category is, and also in the fire. Right. Because, you know, the last 10 years, everything all just seems going up. Right. Right. We really haven't been tested in any regard. I think now some of the events that have happened with, you know, some of the the unicorns or whatnot, I think we're all starting to remember what happens. Things can go wrong. Yeah. Part of it is dependent on what your own risk tolerance is in terms of even like anxiety levels of being able to work in an environment that has periods of uncertainty. Right. Because the different companies that are startups constantly raising money. I think all of it's great. I mean, I think it's important to experience big corporations. I think it, you know, I wish I had been a profit center. I wish I had had more exposure to what it was like to be a management because I don't think I really understood what it's like to be supposedly a leader in a highly matrixed organization. It's funny you mentioned management because Angela talked about the same thing, which was one of the things that big companies tend to be better at than startups is they have all these systems in place to evaluate people, manage them. And and it's sort of taken for granted often and maybe criticized even when you're at a big company. But at a small company, everything's moving so fast. But yet, you're still deal- dealing with people who want to know, how am I doing? Am I going to get a raise? What What's my pathway at this organization, even if it's quite small? And smaller companies are sometimes just not set up. They don't have the resources, the experience to, to do that. But big companies sometimes do. No, absolutely. And that goes back to like the, the risk tolerance and certainty and like the career path that one wants, because that's 100 percent right. When when I joined a dot com in like 2000 or 99, I think everyone knew that they were sort of pioneers and mavericks. Right. And so they weren't looking for strong HR departments or, you know, the kind of checked in mentorship and blah, blah, blah. It was just sort of not vigilanteism, but like sort of. And now I think startups are just another option. But people want all of the security and consistency and expectation and free food and ping pong, you know. <laughs> so that you're exactly right. I know I want ping pong. Let's talk about the investment management industry a little bit since you're in the thick of it. It's gone through and is continues to go through lots of change. What do you what do you think about this industry you're in today? What are the key trends that you're focused on? and trying to, to work within? Well, they're very much the, the, the same ones of, that motivated me to leave. And so when I said I started seeing this money move across generations, I thought, wow, I used to talk to the patriarch or matriarch or maybe both. But when this money starts moving, I could be speaking to more than 12 people. Same bucket of money, but they all have different needs. Someone has to pay for private school. Other people want to pay off a house. Other people might have alimony payments, like all of it. And I thought, how am I ever going to keep my arms around this money and then grow my business in the fee compressed world? So I, I think you have these tensions. Um, the asset managers have to grow, but they're under incredible scrutiny and fee compression. 
But what's really interesting, and this is an, another kind of unintended benefit of what we did, right now all the distribution costs are fixed. They're expensive, right? So everyone wants the ETF or the mutual fund or something to be free, the trade up front. But the ability to trade on that and custody and all that hasn't necessarily had the same fee compression. So that's a tension right now. Does that make sense for different asset managers? They yeah. have this expensive back office. They have this expensive distribution network. So that's partly why we're seeing all of these manufacturers come to us and say, look, we typically have worked with all the big wirehouses, but we're paying for shelf space and maybe we're also you know, sharing management fees. With you guys, you touch community banks, credit union, family offices. Could we make our models and some of our product available in, the, in like the different institutions? The other thing is the the electronic onboarding and rebalancing and messaging and all you know the audit checks you do from a client standpoint. They they really take out so much cost for an institution, and so you know that that I think digital platforms or any sort of technology, they're looked at not by companies not only for acquisition and retention but really for stripping out costs. What's your view on active versus passive? Do you think active management is dead and dying, or is there room for that in in this industry? I definitely think there's room for that. Um, definitely, you know, like think small cap and there are other sectors that typically outperform. But I think, you know, indexing is is also the norm. And it always makes sense probably with the core kind of strategy and then satellite with different other investments. But if there was one answer, we would all know. I mean, I, I definitely think that there's a place for active management, um, in my opinion. Well, it seems like there are always people who outperform. It's maybe a very small percentage, right. but there are people who do it and do it relatively consistently. But the average investor probably doesn't have the insight or the ability to find those managers. That's true. The flip side is they don't necessarily know how to analyze and assess the cap weighting of a certain index or whether or not something is leveraged or things of that nature. Right. So, so. you have to look closely at the, the details of a particular ETF or index to know exactly what exposure you're yeah, and that's part of the reason why I don't think the financial advisor is going away, because a lot of people aren't interested in learning. And, and that's not wrong. Right. And there are a lot of reasons why people use um, a financial advisor. So I think working with people to help know when to rebalance, what's the appropriate investment vehicle for certain exposures is pretty important. But I also think that I think what Betterment and others have done is, is so wonderful, and it's really proven the space here. But what people realize going back to my earlier premise, most people lack financial literacy. So you even have to be a pretty educated consumer to find those places, to want to find them, and then to even know, yeah, I'm looking for passive, you know, low-cost portfolios that get rebalanced automatically. I mean, that's so far away from what most people already understand. This podcast is about fintech, and it's about investing. And what I like to ask my guests is to talk a little bit about their own personal investment journey and how they organize their investments. Is it programmatic? Do you have an advisor? Do you, are you a do-it-yourselfer? Talk a little bit about that um, as well. I don't currently have an advisor, although my father is an advisor. Um, you know, as an entrepreneur, a lot of my chips are in Marstone. I mean, very truthfully, actually, I'm, I'm in for the ride with everyone else. So, um, But I am a huge believer in automated and programmatic investing. I, I mean, I think that contrary to what people probably believe, 
the people who stayed in their 401ks and all of that, they just outperformed. I mean, they didn't think they were so clever to beat the market. And some of my most sophisticated clients during the downturn thought they could. And yet if the people had just stayed on their program of how they were investing and rebalancing, they would have been better. So if you can remove the psychological question of, is today the right day? Is this the right amount? And really make it systematic and set it and forget it. I'm a huge fan about that. So the last thing we do on squashing the markets is what we call our lightning round. This is where I ask you pairs of words, and you get to choose one. You don't have to say why, though. So here we go. ETFs or mutual funds? ETFs. Great technology or great advice? Great advice. Merrill Lynch or Betterment? Merrill Lynch. Data or privacy rights? Privacy rights. Google or Amazon? Amazon. Public relations or social media? Social media. Diversification or concentration? Diversification. Hedge funds or venture capital? Venture capital. New York Times or Wall Street Journal? New York Times. Crowdsourced data or expert opinion? Expert opinion. Bitcoin or U.S. dollar? U.S. dollar. And since I know you're a rackets person, Margaret, I'm going to have the last one's special question. Squash or tennis? Squash. There we go. Margaret Hardigan, a pleasure to have you on Squashing the Market. Thank you Thank very you. much, Bill. It was great. Thank you.